The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Luke chapter 17. While you're turning there, let me kind of fill you in on the context that leads up to this chapter, on what's been taking place to lead up to the passage of Scripture I want us to look at today. If you were to go all the way back to Luke 15, you're going to find out that Jesus has been having a number of interactions with the religious leaders. And usually, if you remember from scriptures, those tended to be rather conflicted. They tended to be very oppositional. You go back to Luke 15 and you'll find out that Jesus was, in a sense, offending the religious leaders of the day because Jesus was so open and accommodating to the people that they called the publicans and sinners. Jesus was inviting them to come and get right with God, and that really bothered the religious leaders. And so Jesus responded to their being bothered with three parables. You know them as the parable of the lost sheep, the the lost coin, the lost son. And the point of those parables was to show them that God celebrates when lost sinners come back to him. He's letting the religious leaders know that you shouldn't be upset that these people are doing what's right. You should be glad that they're getting right with God. He continues his teaching in Luke 16 with a parable about a wicked servant who has become aware of judgment that's about to fall him. So he begins to manipulate and scheme and, and, and work and connive trying to get out of the trouble that he's in. Jesus points to that to remind those that those that trust in their own resources and trust in their own abilities to escape coming judgment, that, that that's a problem. They can't trust in themselves. They need to be trusting in God and, and, and going to the Lord because of coming judgment. The Pharisees were hearing that and because Jesus was rebuking them for trusting in their own resources. Well, many of them were rich. Many of them were well-to-do and wealthy, and they didn't appreciate being told that their resources weren't going to help them much. They thought that because they were rich, that was a sign of God's blessing and that God certainly was going to let them into heaven. Jesus goes on in Luke 16 then to tell them another story about two individuals, a, a rich man who dies and goes to torments, goes to hell, and a poor man who gets to go to paradise and be with God. Catch the imagery there? This rich man who thought everything was fine was not prepared for judgment. So now we come to Luke chapter 17. Jesus is going to now turn his attention to his disciples. You can see it in verse 1. Then he said unto his disciples. He tells them in verse 1, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. That's important for his disciples to hear because they've just seen the opposition and the antagonism that Jesus has received from the religious leaders. And Jesus warns his disciples, look, if you stand with me, if you do what's right, you can face the same thing. They'll come after you just like they've come after me. Now he warns them, there is judgment involved for that. Woe unto them by whom the offenses come. Verse 2, it would be better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Jesus points out there's tremendous judgment for those who do wrong. But he's warning his disciples, be prepared because people are going to wrong you. People are going to sin, people are going to offend, people are going to hurt, and you need to be prepared. So what does he tell them in verse 3? Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, 
and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent. Thou shalt forgive him. Now that's a hard statement. Being told that not only do you need to forgive, but you need to forgive again and again and again. Can you picture that? A person doing the same thing, evil, over and over again, seven times a day. When, when my kids were little, my, my oldest seemed like she would always, every time she walked past her brother, would just smack him for no reason. I mean, anytime she could. Now, I know sometimes he deserved it. He was a little brother, right? But, but there seemed like other times, nothing unprovoked. I mean, just completely just whack. And, and I remember asking her one day, is it possible for you to walk past your brother and not hit him? In all sincerity, she was like, no, I don't think I can. <laughs> Some of you have siblings, you can relate. So, so imagine, imagine that scenario. Somebody just walks up to you out of the blue, whacks you. And you're like, hey, you just hit me. You rebuke them. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Well, okay, I, I forgive you. And you move on. A few minutes later, they come back and hit you again. Hey! You just hit me. Oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. But then the third time? Fourth time? The fifth time? At some point, the teeth are clenched. I forgive you. (laughs) The sixth time? The seventh time? I don't know about you, but most of us, I know I, would probably be in the category of No way. (laughs) I I don't think I can do that. And I think the disciples had to have felt the same way. Look at verse 5. Look at their response to Jesus' instruction to forgive seven times in a day. The apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Surely they felt like, oh, I can't do this. It's going to take tremendous amounts of faith. I'm just going to need a, a special working of God. It's going to take a miracle for me to do what you've asked me to do, Jesus. I can't do this. It's bigger faith than I currently possess. You're going to have to increase my faith. Well, look at Jesus' answer in verse 6 to their request to increase their faith. The Lord said, If you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, Be plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Verse 6, Jesus says, Well, if your faith was like a mustard seed, you could do the impossible. I know sometimes we look at a passage like that, that concept of mustard seed faith, and we look at that as a commendable thing, like a faith that grows and develops and and matures. But I I think we're going to see in this passage, Jesus is using this as a little bit of a rebuke. They're saying, hey, we need more faith. And Jesus basically says, look, if you even had just that much faith, what seems to you to be impossible would be possible. He seems to be pointing to the fact that this issue of forgiveness is not so much a matter of faith as it is something else. Keep going. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat, and would not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith that I may sup, gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. Now Jesus sets up a hypothetical situation and he says, which of these scenarios seems more realistic? He says, you've got a, you're a master, you've got a servant, he's been working, he's been doing his job out in the field. When you get to the end of the day, do you come back home and say, all right, you can have a seat. 
I got this. I'll take it from here. He says, no, that's not at all what you would do. If you're the master and you have a servant, sure, he's been working in the field. Sure, he's been taking care of the cattle. And guess what happens when you get home at the end of the day? You're going to expect him to do what servants do. You're going to expect him to continue to serve. It's not that it's mean. It's not that it's cruel. That's what's expected. He says, you wouldn't tell the servant, hey, take the rest of the time off. You would expect the servant to keep on serving. He's worked in the field. Now he gets to work in the kitchen. He serves the master. That's it. He serves because he's a servant. That's his job. That's his duty. That's what he's supposed to do. Now look at verse 9. Jesus asks a question. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. In other words, I, don't, I think not. Jesus says, does the master thank the servant for doing what he is supposed to do? Well, of course not. That's how it works with masters and servants. That's normal. It's expected that a servant serves. If he doesn't serve, there's obviously punishment. But serving isn't unusual. It's typical. It's what's supposed to happen. Servants do their duty. That's what's expected of them. That's the way it works. So now look at verse 10. He says, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Understand this concept. When we look at that phrase where he says, you should call yourself an unprofitable servant for doing your duty. When we hear the term unprofitable, we tend to think very negatively about that. But but, but understand the word itself. The word profit means extra. If you were in business, you were trying to make money. And so if all you did was break even for the year, you you made no profit. Well, you didn't have a loss. It wasn't negative, but you didn't make anything either. You didn't get any extra. You didn't go above. You didn't have a profit. When Jesus says here, those that do their duty are unprofitable, it doesn't mean bad. Literally, the word unprofitable here means unremarkable. It's not worthy of commendation. It's not special. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that it's not unusual. It's normal. It's what's expected. Now, I want you to connect this with what Jesus has been telling his disciples about forgiveness. The disciples asked Jesus, we need extraordinary faith to do what you've asked us to do, to be forgiving. Jesus said, it's not how much faith you have. Even the most insignificant faith could do impossible things. What they needed was not faith. What they needed was simple obedience. Jesus commanded forgiveness, just like the master commanded his servant, and the servant is expected to obey. The disciples didn't need a special dispensation of faith. They didn't need a pat on the back. They didn't need a gold star. What they needed was to simply do what Jesus commanded, and that was to forgive. And that means forgiving seven times a day, no matter what, no matter how often, no complaining, No whining, oh, it's so hard to forgive. Just simple obedience to Christ's command. They were to let it go. They were to forgive. Forgiveness in this passage is not exceptional for the Christian. It's normal. It's expected. It's our duty to forgive others. Now get that concept But then let's also take that one step further. 
That principle of God expects us to do our duty. God expects us to meet a baseline of obedience. But what God also asks of us to do is to go above and beyond. To not just be unprofitable servants who do what's expected of them, but to do more than what's expected. I would suggest that that's true not just in the area of forgiveness, but in obeying the commands of Christ in every other area of life. Understand, it ought to be normal for the Christian to be characterized by obedience, to do what he's asked. For example, we're asked to submit to authority. That's our duty. And obeying those over us doesn't get us a special commendation, a gold star, recognition. We commend things that are extraordinary, not normal. You might say, well, I obey the rules. Reward me. Christ said, you did your duty. That's what's expected. I say, well, I did what I was supposed to do. I should be blessed. Jesus says, you did what I asked you to do. That's normal. I did C work. I should get an A. Well, C is passing, but a C is a C. I want you to understand, and the point I'm trying to make here today is that duty is the baseline of expected behavior for the believer. You you ought to be characterized by doing what's right. It ought to be normal for you to do what you're supposed to do. That shouldn't be a strange thing on campus, that that you do what you're supposed to do, that you live your Christian life the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived. That ought to be normal. You should obviously never be a wicked servant who has to scheme to get out of trouble. God wants us to be dutiful servants who obey our masters. But understand this, doing what is expected of us is the beginning of the process, not the end. It doesn't end with just doing our duty. Should you remain an unprofitable, unremarkable, average servant of the Lord? I'm suggesting to you no. In the context here, obviously Jesus is trying to get them up to that baseline of obedience to God. But I'm telling you, our goals should be higher than just meeting the minimum requirements. Don't believe me? Think about some other passages of Scripture where Jesus emphasizes exactly that and where other Scriptures draw our attention to going above and beyond the minimum expectation. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say it this way, if your enemy compels you to go with him a mile, what are you supposed to do? Go with him too. If someone takes your coat, give him your cloak also. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. Forgive not just seven times, as in this passage, what did Jesus tell Peter? Seventy times seven. Paul would describe it this way. He says, as we live our Christian lives, we're to build our lives out of gold and silver and precious stones. Not simply wood, hay, and stubble. Are you getting the point? Too too often we are too content with just meeting the minimum expectations. We do just enough to not get into trouble. We do exactly and only what we have to do. No more. We go to church just to not get into trouble. We meet the minimum requirements for a project or a paper. We break rules if we can afford the demerits. We skip classes if we have absences left. We obey and we do what we have to do. I get it. It's certainly better than the alternative of doing wrong and being punished. 
We don't want the consequences of skipping church. We want passing grades on the test. We don't want to get demerits or have our grades lowered. So it makes sense that we do what is expected. But at what point should we be content with being unprofitable, unremarkable, average Christians? So I want you to contemplate in your own heart and mind, what would it mean to be a profitable Christian, a profitable student? One that doesn't just meet minimum expectations, but strives for more. For some of you, that means working for the A, not the C. To learn everything there is to know about the subject, not just the minimum that you need to pass the test. To forgive consistently, as we saw in this passage, not just seven times. To have, as Paul would describe, reward in heaven, not just to be saved so as by fire. Students, hear me clearly on this. We, we ought to meet our expectations. We ought to meet our duties. We ought to do what's asked of us, whether it's in your Christian life or whether it's in class attendance. But I challenge you this semester for more. Don't be content to break even. Don't be content to be unprofitable. Don't just do that which is your duty to do. Go above and beyond. Excel. Do your best for your master. Give your all. Serve the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your strength, all of your might. Commit yourself to service, yes, but be dedicated to excellence. And let that turn into being a profitable servant for Christ. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.